Good deal. God bless you. It's good to be with you this morning. God bless you, Pacific West Baptist College. I'm thankful for your heart for the Lord and your heart to study God's word. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, it's a very common question, and quite honestly, it's a fair question. Uh, someone in Surrey, British Columbia might say to Pastor White, well, you know, you'll say this, <coughs> excuse me, then I'll go down the road and there's another house of religion and the man in there says something different. Then I go around the corner and there's another house of religion and the lady in there says something different. So Pastor White, you say this, he says this, she says this, and everyone is different. They cannot all be right. And you know, that's very accurate. Of course, the Bible says no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. There may be many, many things that humans say, and there may be many ideas or many interpretations. However, there's only one that is right. And it's not thus saith me, or thus saith Brother White, it is always thus saith the Lord. That's why we study to show ourselves, and here's the key, approved unto God. God's approval is on the person who studies the Bible like a workman, and then they accurately and they correctly divide the word of truth. So while in Surrey, BC, or where I'm at this, uh, this, well, for me, it's this afternoon. So if I get the time frame a little wrong, uh, I'm going to be accurate. You're still in the morning. I'm still in the afternoon. But but you understand where I am today, where you are today, there may be many, many houses of religion, and they all may have different philosophies and different interpretations. That's why God says, I want my men, I want my people to study the Bible like a workman, labor over the Bible so they can accurately and correctly divide the word of truth. Study to show thyself approved unto God. God bless you as you study the word of God and you prepare to serve the Lord at Pacific West Baptist College. May the hand of God be upon you. May the blessing of God be with you. The provision of God take care of you. I'm so thankful for where you are. I'm thankful for the burden of Brother White. Uh, see, Canadian churches start Canadian churches. Uh, what a critical thing that is. You know, we have Bible schools down in America. Y'all could just stay right in Canada and get the job done. Uh, I'm thankful that uh, why when the borders get shut down, the word of God doesn't get shut down. When the borders are closed down, the work of God doesn't stop. And I'm grateful that God is used in Grace Baptist Church in a special way to, to, to produce and promote Pacific West Baptist College that the work of God might go forward. God bless you as you study and eventually you labor for him in the great harvest field of Canada. Let me invite you to open your Bible this morning slash afternoon to, to the book of Galatians in chapter number three. Galatians chapter number three in your Bible, and I'd like to begin reading from Galatians chapter three and verse number one. Uh, it's just, it's fun, isn't it, doing this way? It's not really. I'd a whole lot rather be right there this morning preaching the word of God. Uh, I'm in my living room and everything's fine so far until the Amazon guy drives up and you knows what's going to happen, but but uh, we'll try to dodge doorbells or whatever else could possibly go wrong as we preach the word of God. Galatians chapter three. You know, when you open your Bible to the book of Galatians, you discover in a quick hurry that there's one thing that stirs the apostle Paul like nothing else. And that would be in chapter two in verse number 14. He said, when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. I, the apostle Paul, had a life that was invested in the truth 
of the gospel. And when someone would begin to play games with, or they would begin to tamper with the gospel, well, that's a real quick way to get the dander of the apostle Paul up. The man would get all stirred up. The man would get all worked up when people started playing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter one, verse number eight, just as a quick review, uh, I, I know you either have or you will spend time in Galatians. But in chapter 1, verse 8, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Uh, let him be accursed. It would be hard to find a stronger word than that word accursed. Paul was saying, if someone preaches a gospel that is not the gospel of the word of God, then I don't care. He said, if it was an angel from heaven, that angel from heaven ought to be accursed and damned to hell forever and ever. My, it's serious business, the gospel of Jesus. How about chapter 2 and verse number 11? He said, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. I got right in his face because he was to be blamed. So Paul's making a list now and he's checking it twice. He's taking no prisoners. He said, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven. Now he says, I don't care if it's Dr. Peter himself. You know, by the time the book of Galatians, one of the earlier New Testament books was given, but even by this moment in time, why Peter had become incredibly legendary. You know, you love Peter and I admire Peter and we have great respect for him. But in the first century, when he was still alive, you know, that was Peter, man. That was the guy who went up in the mountain and saw the glory of Christ. That was Peter. That was the guy who was the first one to go into the empty tomb. I mean, that is Peter. Peter is the guy who walked on water. And you might say today, well, he didn't go very far, but I would have to say he certainly has gotten a whole lot farther than I've ever gotten. I mean, Peter's the man who walks on the water, who goes into the empty tomb. What a story. By the time Galatians is written, uh, you know, Peter is almost exalted to the place where he can do no wrong. He is legendary. Paul said, I don't care if it's Dr. Peter himself. If he is not right according to the gospel, then I will get in his face. You know, back in Galatians chapter 2, he had a few other things to say. He said in the first part of the chapter, you know, could I put it this way, when the liberal seminary professors from Jerusalem come along, and why, of course, those were the ones who, who pretty much were the reason for the book of Galatians. They came out of the, the schools of religion in Jerusalem, and they were saying, well, no, 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 Paul was right, and you need Jesus to be saved, but you have to become Jewish to stay saved. And you know, the reason Galatians is in the Bible, actually, I think there's two of them. The first one is because, well, the word of God could not be more explicit and clear that works do not save. We are not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Christ. Galatians is in the Bible to just bring some more hammers down on that point that is so found throughout the entire New Testament, not by works, not by works. We are not saved by works. But I'm quite certain there's a secondary reason for Galatians, because it is true that we are not saved by works, but it is also true that works do not keep us saved. So I am never going to go to heaven and boast I'm here by my righteousness. But you know, once I trust Christ, these teachers had come from the schools in Jerusalem, and their attitude and their thinking was, now you have to follow our way to stay safe, or maybe to get an extra dose of salvation, or to rise to a certain level of salvation. You know, when it comes to being saved, excuse the grammar now, but you is or you isn't. 
Either you have Christ or your Savior, or you don't have Christ as your Savior. You cannot be half born into the family of God. Either you belong to Jesus or you don't. Either you're saved or you're unsaved. There is no halfway or in between. There is no greater level of salvation. No, either we have the Spirit of God or we don't. What a powerful thing Galatians is to tell us or the unsaved person that it is not by works, not by the deeds of the flesh, not by the works of the law, but for those of us who are saved, we have to be reminded that we do not keep our salvation by our works. Of course, James and even Galatians are clear that works are the evidence of someone who is saved but we do not work so that we keep our salvation. So if an angel from heaven shows up, or if Dr. Peter shows up, or if in the first part of chapter two, of the, the seminary professors, as I would call them, from the schools of religion in Jerusalem show up, or a little bit later in chapter two, my personal favorite, if the big boys from the conference show up. You know, I find it interesting that nowadays, very few churches, and there's some still, but they don't do what Grace Baptist Church is doing. They don't have revival services. They don't have preaching. Preaching has been replaced by conferences. Well, here's a conference here and a conference there, and here's what your assigned topic is. Here's what the assigned message is. And I find it interesting that one of the new ideas is that we have less preaching and we have more discussions. Well, it's interesting, the word conference is found but one time in our Bible, and it's not a positive thing. Basically, in Galatians 2, Paul said, I don't care who the big boys in the conference are. They added nothing to me. He said, I don't care how famous they are. I don't care how renowned they are. You could almost hear Paul say, I don't care if they're bloggers, and even if they're a bestseller at Amazon, it's not going to impress him. Why, the Apostle Paul said, if it's an angel from heaven, if it's Dr. Peter himself, if it's the seminary professors from Jerusalem, or the famous big boys in the conference, if they're not right according to the gospel, Paul says they have an appointment with me. So with that in mind, let's go to Galatians chapter 3 this morning or afternoon. And from Galatians chapter 3 in verse number 1, the Bible says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Father, I pray that you would remind us as we open the Bible that, that uh, the word of God must be our, our only rule of faith and practice. I pray for the men and the ladies at Pacific West Baptist College that you'd encourage them and strengthen them, meet their needs. As well, Father, I pray that we would be determined to know, to love, to honor the Word of God. Make us strong in these evil days. I ask it in the great name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen. It would be a good time at Galatians 3 and verse number 1 to stop and remind ourselves why the Apostle Paul is so stirred up. In chapter 1, verse 11, he said, But I certify unto you, brethren... Then in chapter 4, verse number 19, he says, you're my little children. That's a great reminder, isn't it? You know, Paul is not on the warpath here trying to find somebody he can fight with, but Paul is looking at those churches in Galatia, which to us would be modern-day Turkey, and Paul is saying, wait a minute, I'm the one who risked my life to go to that part of the world and start churches. 2,000 years ago, that part of, of Turkey was infested with malaria. There are people, medical people, who guess 
that uh, for some of Paul's medical issues later, they may have started here. He may have contracted malaria, who knows? But uh, whatever, indeed, Paul put his life on the line in more ways than we simply read about in the Bible. Paul said, I'm the one who came and brought you to the Savior. I'm the one who planted the church. I'm the one who discipled you and taught you. And I want you to know, he said, there's a reason I'm so stirred up. He said, the reason is because you, he said, are my brothers and sisters. Later, he said, you are my little babies. You are my little children in Christ. You know, Paul looked at it as family. And when somebody came in with a new gospel, somebody came in with false doctrine, Paul said, I've got to defend my brothers. I've got to help my little children to make sure they don't stumble and fall. To this, all the attacks were very personal to him. So he comes to verse number one, and, and I got to tell you, reading that verse, it, it's kind of a little stunning, isn't it? I, I mean, you know, you don't stand up. I'm not certainly going to stand up in front of Pacific West Baptist College, and, and uh, I'm far enough away to get away with it. What could you do? But I'm still not going to do it and say, you people are foolish. You people are bewitched. Well, I tell you, that's some pretty strong language, isn't it? To call somebody foolish, yet that's what Paul does in verse number one. But it's important for you and me to remember that the word foolish over the course of time has taken on a very obviously negative meaning. But 2,000 years ago, the word foolish had two different meanings, maybe more. The word foolish could mean, as you and I think of it, you know, you're a fool, you're stupid, you're a moron. But the word fool could also mean you lack discernment, you're missing something. It's a very strong word, a very offensive word in our vocabulary. However, 2,000 years ago, it is possible to call somebody foolish and the edge wasn't there like it is for us. That's why when you remember one of my favorite stories in the Bible, you know, everybody has that story. I wish I could have been there. You know where mine, if I could have been one place or the first thing I'm going to rent from the DVD store in heaven, uh, or, you know, I know it's up in the cloud, but you know what I'm saying? The first thing I'm going to do, I, I, I want the story on the road to Emmaus. You know, to me, that would have been special. Can you imagine those two are, are leaving Calvary in Jerusalem now, and, and they're heading back to the west-northwest, and they're heading towards that little village of Emmaus. They are confused, and, and they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know what's next. And all of a sudden, there's the Lord Jesus with those two. And as they're making their way towards that village of Emmaus, why, you know, the Bible tells us that what Jesus did, it's astounding. He, he opened the scriptures to them. He preached Christ out of the Old Testament. You know, there's a lot of fun things to preach in the Bible. To be honest, sometimes it's work and it's not always fun. It's not always supposed to be fun. But, you know, probably, at least for me, and I don't know if Brother White would agree with this, but to me, one of the most pleasurable things to do as a preacher, one of the most satisfying things is to preach Christ out of the Old Testament. I mean, it is so rich. It is so powerful. The, the, the analogies, the pictures are glorious. I love to preach Christ out of the Old Testament. You know, forget what any of us could ever do. Can you imagine hearing Jesus preach Christ out of the Old Testament? I've got to tell you, that would have been a great journey. He must have been talking about verses that I've never thought of, stories that I've never seen. And yet there he is one by one explaining to those two on the road to Emmaus, the Messiah from the Old Testament. And yet remember what he said as he walked with them. 
And, and remember, we are talking about either two men or a man and a lady, but whoever they were, we are talking about two people that loved Jesus so much they were in Jerusalem when he died on the cross. That's not true of too many. They were faithful and they had great love and a great heart to honor and to live for the Lord. And yet now, now Jesus had died and they weren't quite sure what to do. And in Luke 24, he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You know, those two people on the road to Emmaus were anything but foolish. And yet the Lord used that word, not to say you're stupid, not to say you're ignorant, but to say you've missed something. You haven't added this up together. The word foolish in Galatians 3 verse 1 is much the same. It is not Paul chastising him and whipping him and, and mocking him them. It is Paul saying, now for all the teaching and all the preaching and, and maybe all the letters, there's something you haven't put together yet. There's something you're missing. Let me help you with that. Oh, foolish Galatians, and here's the problem, who hath bewitched you? You know, we kind of get that in, in our way of thinking, uh, the magic arts, and we kind of get uh, uh, some, some uh, occult way of using the word bewitched. Well, in New Testament times, it was a word that meant to cast an evil eye. It, it is describing somebody that has a spell over you. And, you know, that kind of seems to be the story, doesn't it? And it wasn't true just then, it's true today. It's amazing to me how quickly people can have someone bewitch them and cast a spell over them. And I don't mean a spell like a witch would do with a cauldron, but it's amazing how, well, this guy's a big guy on TV and he's like, everybody watches him. And if he's pretty enough and he's famous enough, then somehow he just seems to cast a spell whereby people don't listen to what he says. Well, this guy is the number one bestseller at Amazon. What could go wrong with that? Well, the Lord Jesus said, if they were of the world, the world would love his own. But because he said to his disciples, you're not of the world, therefore the world hateth you. You know, if somebody's number one with the world, they promise you they're not number one in heaven. If the world likes it, there is something desperately wrong with it. And that's what made it so powerful 2,000 years ago. And, and with the internet and with all the bloggers and the rest of it, it's, it's made even more dangerous even now. Because it's awfully easy for somebody on TV, it is awfully easy for somebody on a website to cast a spell, to bewitch people, to deceive people. But I find it interesting in verse number one, when he said, who hath bewitched you? Uh, you know, it'd be awfully easy to blame the philosophers and the conference speakers and, and the professors from Jerusalem. But the end, the end of the matter is this, that word bewitched is a singular verb which means they were bewitched not by a group of men, not by writers. Ultimately, when someone is bewitched, they are bewitched by Satan himself. He's the roaring lion and he is on the warpath. That's why the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, Pacific West Baptist College, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The warning in Galatians 3 and verse number one is sounded. If a church that had been established by the apostle Paul could be fooled and bewitched, then you and I can be fooled and bewitched. And people that literally heard from the mouth of Paul, if they could be fooled and bewitched, then there is a risk and a danger for you and for me. Now, I know this morning you don't want to be fooled, and I certainly don't want to be bewitched. So if you would, let's go again to Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. And I want to give you just a simple little outline straight from these first few verses, because if you don't want to be fooled, and if I don't want to be bewitched, 
Well, the word of God gives us the prescription. Would you notice number one, if we will not be fooled and bewitched, we must obey the truth. Look, if you would, to verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And here's why they're in trouble, that ye should not obey. You were not actively and continuously obeying. And notice what they weren't obeying, simply the truth. So these people in Galatia got in trouble because it wasn't the daily practice of their life to live in obedience to a, a, a living in obedience to the word of God. That's why they got in trouble. That's why they were fooled and bewitched. If it was true then, it's more true today. I, I mean, people get all caught up. Well, you know, here comes the daily blog by so-and-so. Here's the daily devotion by so-and-so. And pretty soon we're hearing the words of so-and-so and not the words of God. We are all going to get in trouble when we are not actively, daily, hourly, moment by moment, obeying the truth. That, of course, begs the question that I don't have to spend a lot of time on with Pacific West Baptist College, and that would be, what is truth? Now, if you were to go down the road to the university, well, well, that would be a semester-long issue. That would be a course. What is truth? And of course, months later, you would be told there is no truth, for what is truth to you may not be truth to me. I read a book about two years ago now by a professor in Berkeley, and it was called The Half-Life of Facts. What a book to read. An unsaved man, a definitely unsaved man, promoting wrong thinking, to be certain. Yet the professor admitted, he said, if the science world believes that something is true, and it depends on what field of science, but the average was about seven years, six or seven years. So if the science world believes that something is true for six or seven years, then it is truth, no matter what happens after six or seven years. So that explains this to me. See, when I was a, a boy growing up in school, the teachers taught us that there were nine planets out there. Then somewhere in the, in the 90s, if I, my time frame is right, they, they said, no, 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 no. There's only eight planets out there. But a few years ago, we're back to nine now. Now, now look, I don't know. I'm so confused. I don't know how many planets are out there. But I do know this, that either there are eight planets out there or there are nine planets out there or there's another number. But what I do know is that number's not changing every day. Either there are eight or there are nine or there is some other number. But you know, while you and I would say, yeah, there's a set number of planets out there, that's not how the science world believes. And Brother White, this was such a, an eye-opening book to me. Because as I read it, I said, this is why there is no middle ground. This is why there is no halfway. This is why there is no compromise. Because they don't believe in truth. They believe that truth changes with their thinking. And true is true. It doesn't matter if the little boys and girls in school don't like it. Two plus two is still four. It was four yesterday. It's going to be four tomorrow. And, and no matter what new math comes along, two plus two is still four. In astronomy, I don't know how many planets are out there anymore, but I know there's a set number of them. It's not going to change. Truth does not change. And while the world has no concept of truth, their truth is a relative nebulous thing. The child of God has no problem. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. So why were the Galatian people in trouble? Well, they were not actively obeying the truth, the Bible. How is it that you and I can be fooled and deceived and bewitched? It will happen when our lives are not built upon and immersed in the word of God. And when we stop consciously obeying the truth, that's when we are open to error. 
and open to being bewitched and being fooled. So you don't want to be fooled and I don't want to be bewitched. What's the key? Number one, we have to invest and immerse our lives in the Bible. Constantly knowing, constantly studying, constantly obeying. You and I have to be men and ladies of the word of God. Notice number two, if we are not going to be fooled and bewitched. Now, now could I just stop for a second? Because Often when we preach, and there's a three-point outline, it, humanly speaking, our, our mind says there's three equal points. And most of the time, that is true. However, this time, it's not so. In Galatians 3, there is an order here. And number one, the Bible is saying that if you don't want to be fooled and bewitched, obey the truth. That's where it starts. That's the first thing. This is not three points and pick one of them. There are three points here, but they're in an order, and you have to start at the top. So number one, more than anything else, when it comes to whatever the latest issue is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I, after we have exhausted what does the Bible say, notice number two. At the end of verse number one, he said, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Well, what a beautiful thing. We don't want to be fooled. We don't want to be bewitched. So number one, first thing we do is go to the Bible, obey the truth of the Bible. But then number two, we go to Calvary. So we could put it like this, discerning people. Number one, they go to the Bible. And then number two, discerning people live at the cross before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth. You know, that word evident in New Testament times, it would describe the guy standing on a street corner with a sandwich board, a sign board, somebody waving somebody into this restaurant or into this shop. It was pretty much the, the word evident in New Testament times. It was an advertisement for everybody to see. I love that verse because when you stop and think it through, the chances that anyone in Galatia was actually in Jerusalem when Jesus died on the cross or about nil. I guess I couldn't stand here and say nobody in Galatia happened to be in Jerusalem when he died. But you know, the chances of that are very small. That's a long, arduous journey. Uh, I mean, there were no planes flying back then. And, and while somebody may have been there, the truth is none or few of those people, if any, were. Yeah, did you see what the Bible says? In effect, at the end of verse one, Paul is saying to these church people, you weren't in Jerusalem and you didn't watch him die on that cross and you weren't there when they buried him and you didn't see him when he rose again. But, but Calvary was so real to these people that Jesus had been evidently set forth crucified among them. Well, that's the power of preaching. That's the power of preaching. Paul had done such a good job and men like him were so faithful to preach like 1 Corinthians 1 says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Do you see what happened? By the preaching of the cross, it was evident to them. It was clear to them. He's kind of saying in verse one, you weren't there, but it's like you were there. And 2,000 years later, none of us, of course, were there physically, but through the preaching of the word, through wonderful godly songs, years I spent in vanity and pride. Why, we have heard Calvary, sung Calvary, preached Calvary to the place where even though we weren't there, we've been there. 
I mean, it's a powerful thing he is saying in verse number one. It's the great reminder that when you leave Pacific West Baptist College, you have orders. There's a job to do. There's a message to preach. And the world calls it foolishness. But unto us which are saved, the cross is still the dynamite power of God. We have a message to preach to make Jesus evident, the cross evident to an unsaved world. And so look at it again now. But the big picture, the big picture says, I don't want to be fooled. And you don't want to be bewitched. So number one, we go to the Bible. First things first, we obey the word of God. Then number two, we go to Calvary. Hey, Paul is saying before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth. Go to the cross, crucified among you. You know, that fixes a lot of problems, doesn't it? Not too far from, from Grace Baptist Church when, well, not this week, of course, but when everything comes back together, you know, there will be a, a probably a very large house of religion. On a Sunday, the crowd will come. They'll fill an auditorium and, and a, a beautiful, just a gorgeous little baby just decked out to the hilt. The pastor will hold this newborn baby up in front of the church, in front of the people, and then he will dip his hand in the water and either pour some water on the head of the baby or sprinkle some water on the head of the baby and then announce to the people assembled, this baby is now a Christian. Question, why did Jesus die? When you go to Calvary, why did Jesus die? If Pastor White could sprinkle water on the head of a baby and turn the baby into a Christian, then why did Jesus go to a cross and why did he die? Why Calvary if there was another way? Another house of religion, people on a Saturday night are going to walk into a booth and, and behind the curtain will be a mortal man, no different than any one of us. From one side of the curtain, they will confess their sins. From the other side of the curtain, the man of religion will say, I absolve you. We're back to the question, why did Jesus die? If you could have a minister absolve you, why did he die? If you could sprinkle water, why did he die? If there was some other way, if there was a prayer to pray, if there was a gift to bring, if there was money to pay, if there was any other way to heaven apart from the royal blood of Jesus Christ, then the question stands, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And that's what he's saying. Number one, you go to your Bible. And then after you've exhausted the Bible, then number two, you go to Calvary. And when you go to Calvary, it's amazing how many things are fixed. It's amazing how much false doctrine does not stand in the light of the cross. If there was any other way to heaven, apart from the shedding of the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, don't you think God would have chosen that way? Don't you think God the Father would have accepted another plan? And yet religion adds their works of righteousness. Well, if they were right in Galatians chapter 2, uh, and you needed to be circumcised and become a Jew in order to keep your salvation, you can almost hear Paul thunder and cry from the top of his lungs. Then what about Calvary? Why did Jesus die? If there was a physical right to do, why would Jesus suffer like he did upon the cross? Oh, the Bible always gets it right. And then if there's still questions, Calvary's going to fix those questions. So what do you do? I don't want to be fooled and you don't want to be bewitched. How do we become strong in the things of God? Number one, we go to the book. What does the Bible say? Then number two, we go to Calvary. After we've exhausted one, we go to Calvary and the cross is going to fix the problem. But notice there's a third thing in our text. Go, if you would, to verse number two, Galatians chapter three and verse number two. And, and let me say one more time, 
just to drive it home. There is an order here. This is not any one of these will do. We have to start with the Bible, then we go to the cross, then number three, we go to our testimony. The question is, this only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, now, it would appear that these teachers from the seminaries in Jerusalem, they were telling people, oh, you know, what you need is this, this is how it would be described today, this second work of grace, this second work of salvation. No, this is a different level. This is a, a new thing. You need to receive the Spirit. There's almost a charismatic attitude here. And, you know, there's much of that thinking today. It's been around now for a long time. The thinking that says, well, you need Jesus to be saved, but then you need to speak in tongues or you need to do some work of religion, and that's when you're going to receive the Spirit of God. And, you know, there's a Bible word for it, I think. It's hogwash. I don't know if that's a Bible word, but that's what it thinking is. It doesn't work like that. The Bible tells us that either you have the Spirit of God or you don't. And in Romans, say, if you do not have the Spirit of God, that means that you are not not his. In John 3, when a man is born again, that moment, you know, it's not a process. There's a moment someone is born. There is a moment someone is born again. It, it didn't take Zacchaeus six months. Man, he walked up, went up the tree as a hell-bound sinner. He came down the tree as a child of God. It happened in a moment. In that moment of time, someone is born into the family of God, and, and the Word of God says they are born by the Spirit into the family of God. The moment you were saved, the moment you called upon Christ is the moment the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. You don't get half the Spirit of God. You don't get partial spirit. Either he is or he isn't. Either he's in us or he is not. Either we belong to him or we don't. There's no middle ground with this. There's no higher plane to arrive at. Either we belong to the Savior or we do not. So Paul tells these Galatian people, go back to your salvation. How did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit? Were you adopted into the family of God by the works of religion, by a rite of religion, by a prayer of religion, by a confession of religion? Or were you born into the family of God by the Spirit of God? And it makes all the difference in the world. Well, you were born into the family of God by the Spirit of God. You're going to stay in the family of God by the Spirit of God. So when the false teachers and when the false bloggers and when the false writers and when the false doctrine comes along, it's time to say, number one, what does the Bible say? It's time to take a trip to Calvary and take a look at the old rugged cross. Why did Jesus die? If there was some other way, don't you think the Father would have chosen that? After we go to Calvary, number three, go back to the day we were saved. It all started by grace through faith. And you know, if that's how the Lord saved us, that is how we're going to stay saved. We don't work to save ourselves. We don't work to keep our salvation. It is Jesus who did all the work. My friend, you and I got to understand in times like these, the great dangers and the great risk. As you leave Pacific West Baptist College and you're going in the harvest fields and serving the Lord, on every side, there's so much false teaching. There's so many great experts that have a lot of human wisdom, but not Bible. And why you and I need to study and know and let the word of God fill our hearts because with all the false teaching and with all the false doctrine, you don't want to be fooled, and I don't want to be bewitched. What does the Bible say? Why did Jesus die? How was I saved? Those questions will keep us from being fooled and bewitched. Napoleon used to tell the story. 
or could I, let me rephrase this. It was alleged that Napoleon told this story, okay? And, and I, I say that because, it, well, it could have gone through one or two sermon illustration books. You never know. Allegedly, Napoleon, Napoleon said that he had gone into his province and, and there he had visited an old, old one-armed soldier. Aye, that old man had come out dressed to meet Napoleon and he had on his dress uniform. And, and of course, one arm was gone. And, and, and on his uniform, that old man displayed proudly the coveted Legion of Honor award. Well, Napoleon allegedly now went up to the old soldier and said, where did you lose your arm? came the response, I lost it at Austerlitz, sire, and that was his reply. And, and supposedly, Napoleon looked at the old soldier and said, I see, because you lost your arm in the battle at Austerlitz, for this you have received the Legion of Honor. And the old man said, yes, sire, however, that is no small token to pay for such a decoration. As the story goes, Napoleon was to have looked at the man and said, you must be the kind of man who wishes he didn't lose both of his arms for his country. And the old timer said, well, sir, had I lost both arms for my country, what would my award have been? And Napoleon said, well, if you lost both arms, I'd award you a double legion of honor. And as the story guy goes, the guy picked up a sword and he cut off his other arm. And that story went around for a long, long time until somebody said, wait a minute, how did he cut off his other arm? You know, sometimes the story could, shall we say, be a little too good to be true. Maybe every now and then the child of God, kind of like the Bereans, you know, they must have been a great church. And it's not, I don't think, an arrogance. I don't think it's the I know it all attitude. But, but you know, you may be Paul and we respect you and appreciate you. However, we're still just going to check the scriptures and see if these things are so. And, you know, with all the doctrine, especially now with all the blogs and it's so ubiquitous, the child of God's got to ask the question once in a while, well, how did he cut off his other arm? And once in a while, we just have to come to the place where we realize it may look it, it may sound good, it may seem good, but what does the Bible say? Why did Jesus die? How was I saved? Because it is not, this is what I think. It is not, this is what I feel. It is not, this is what I dreamed. It is not my preacher said. It is not my professor thinks. It is not my singer sings. It is, what does the Bible say? Why did Jesus die? How was I born again? We don't want to be fooled and we don't want to be bewitched. There's our formula. Father in heaven, how thankful I am for the men and ladies at Pacific West Baptist College. May you, may you encourage them in the Lord today. Father, I pray that you would help them lift up their eyes and see fields whited unto harvest. Lord, all across the great land of Canada, cities and villages and towns are in desperate need of churches and men that will preach the gospel. Father, how I pray that, that you would use these people in a great way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we know on every side they're great enemies. We know the enemy is powerful as a roaring lion. Father, we know that in his arsenal there's a lot of tools, more now than there were even 2,000 years ago. But at the end of the day, it is the same lie from the same source. I pray that we would be strong in the book, that we would live at Calvary, and we would never forget the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Help your men and your ladies in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.